Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. We love movies with Gordon Hayden. This film blew me away. What's your favorite scary movie? McLovin? You can't handle the truth. That escalated quickly. And the winner is... We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden. Spin. Hello and welcome along to We Love Movies with me, Gordon Hayden. Coming up on this week's show, we will be speaking to one of our finest actors, Tom Vaughn Lawler all about his new film, Rialto. Now, you know Tom best from playing Nidge in Love-Hate, and he was also Thanos' right-hand man in Avengers Infinity War and Endgame. Rialto, it's written by Marco Halloran. We'll be reviewing the film and having a good chat with Tom a little later on on We Love Movies. Now, also out this week on the new film side of things is Aaron Sorkin's latest directorial effort, The Trial of the Chicago 7. We'll be reviewing that film and we'll be taking a look at all the big movie stories from the week. So lots to come on this week's We Love Movies with me, Gordon Hayden. We love movies with Gordon Hayden. Spin. We love movies with Gordon Hayden. Spin. Now, still to come on We Love Movies, we'll have a roundup of all the big movie stories from the week with our man in the know, Andy McCarroll, plus our reviewer Chris Wasser will be here to take a look at Aaron Sorkin's latest directorial project, The Trial of the Chicago 7. It's getting a limited cinema run for two weeks and then it moves to Netflix. And the other film, which Chris will be taking a look at, is Rialto, which stars Tom Vaughn Lawler. And Tom is our big guest on this week's show. We're going to hear from him shortly. So just to give you an insight into the plot to Rialto, Tom Von Lawler, he plays Colm, who's in his mid-40s. He has a comfortable life, a managerial job in Dublin's Docklands. He's got two teenage children. The relationship with his eldest son, Shane, is not good at all, but he's a kind and loyal wife in Claire. Now, after the death of his father, a destructive figure in his life, Colm's emotional life cracks open and his downward spiral continues when he is made redundant. He's drinking heavily and is unable to confide in Claire. So Colm finds himself drawn to Jay, a 19-year-old who dabbles in prostitution. Their sexual encounters and tentative friendship become Colm's only solace. But this recklessness puts his family's life at risk. Before we hear from the star of the film, Tom Vaughn Lawler, here is a little bit from Rialto. There's a pose to it, I think. It's natural. You're beautiful. You hiding? I'll shame you what you've done. And how dare you? This frightens me. Like a fool, you treat me. You don't even know me. You judge me, you don't even know me. It's not awful, don't you think? I don't think you should have done that. Lost, all right. I want to be straight out. I want a life. I want to be a good person. There's no lies between us. Well, Tom, thank you so much for your time. Um, really, really appreciate it. And Rialto, what a piece of work, Tom. I was blown away with it. And it's the type of film that stays with you for days afterwards. Um, for those that um, may have seen the, the trailer, the posters, but just looking for a little bit more detail about your character, Colm, in it, can you just give us an insight into the man? Yeah, he's a, he's a 46-year-old Dublin man, working class, uh, with a wife and two teenage kids, or um, kind of nearly adult kids. And he works in the docks, and his life is, he's kind of a man who's slightly full of, self, full of self-hatred, doesn't really know where he, he's grieving the loss of his father, 
And um, basically what happens is he, in, in the first few minutes of the film, he, um, he has an, an encounter with a young male prostitute in a, in a public toilet and he crosses a threshold and makes a choice um, to go on a journey with this young man. And, and he, he kind of explodes his life from the inside out. And he, he's, it's, he's him trying to deal with the grief of the loss of his father, trying to figure out who he is as a person and who he is as a father, as a husband and uh, as a man. And it, it's kind of, it's kind of free fall from that, from the beginning. It, it's kind of nonstop really from there. Mm-hmm. Um, his kind of downward spiral. Um, but, you know, bleak as that sounds um, and tough as the film is at times, I think it has a great degree of hope about about the bravery, bravery of humanity and about identity and trying to figure out who we are and that, that is a, that's also a life's work trying to figure out who we are. And I think, I think for all its intensity, I think it's a very, I think it's a very beautiful film and it's, it's, it's unsentimental. It's not easy to watch, but I think it's a very rewarding experience. It, it also showcases as well, Tom, that the, the masks that people wear around different people and Ooh. how they are judged by others, even though, look, I'm the same person, you know, 24-7, yeah. but yet, like, for example, we see Colm, how the relationship he has with his son in comparison to his daughter, it's complete chalk yeah. and cheese, how his relationship with his wife is almost, you know, in a strange way become... She's come like you feel like he's living with his mother as opposed to yeah. his, his wife. Yeah, I think masks is a really good word to use because it's about the roles we play in our lives and about how you know when we are who how we are in relation to our partners, our, our husbands, our wives, our children, our colleagues, strangers, and that that's a lot to get through before we get to who we really are by ourselves in the quiet hours of the dark who are we and that's a that's i think that that's a question for everyone isn't it? it's a question that is eternal because when you're dealing with your own ego and you're dealing with your own frailties and vulnerabilities and you're trying to figure out who you are no matter i i think that's what's exciting about life right is that you're hopefully you're always evolving always learning and 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 People who come into our lives are all the time teaching us about who we are. Like, for instance, our children, what, what, how, how they inform our lives and how they make their sense here to teach us. And, and I think in the film, what's hard for Colm is that he's been, this legacy has been bestowed upon him by his own father of, of a kind of warped masculinity that he doesn't really relate to in terms of a kind of an alpha male um, identity that his son can identify with. And so he's a man who doesn't know how to speak to his son, hasn't got the language to speak to his son, and has kind of drifted into, a, with his wife, has drifted into a stasis in the place of, 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 of not being able to be in any way intimate and vulnerable. And again, these are kind of problems that we all face, I think, about as time moves on, who we are as people, our relationships are our, with our, our lovers, with our children, how we relate to them and how, how we're all the time processing our own identities, our own relationship to the world. And, and again, I think what Mark O'Halloran, screenwriter, and what Peter Mackie Burns, director, have done brilliantly is, is capture the nuance and the ambiguity of day-to-day living. That it's all, we're all the time trying to renegotiate our contract with life. And, and I think... 
I, I, I'm really proud of it as a film because it's uncompromising and because it doesn't, it doesn't offer any black and white answers. It just, it offers nuanced questions. And, and I think that's a positive, to be honest. One of the things I loved about the film as well, Tom, is um, it's such a masterclass from, from all the leads, but in particular yourself when it comes to internal acting, I find, because you can see so many different films where writers just feel worried about um, how someone is going to emote on, uh, on camera and feel yeah. like they nearly have to write that into the dialogue. So we get yeah. a good understanding of how the, the character's feeling internally. But you do so much with your face in so many different scenes, like, like that m- moment when he crosses the, the threshold, as it were, and goes into yeah. the toilet. We get to see this, yeah. again, the mask coming off. We, we, and just th- there's almost just a, a glimmer of the excitement that is there. It's almost nearly orgasmic before he goes into the toilet, but also yeah. the strain that he carries. Can I talk to you just about um, leading up to some of those scenes and, and knowing full well how you're going to play them just facially almost? Well, I think, again, it, it, it's, it's when you have a script that, that, that is so multi-layered and is so nuanced and you have a director as well who, who is about detail and about truth that you can't, you're not, it's not going to work if you are demonstrative, if you are, if it's a, it's, it, it, it's a piece that requires sensitivity in, in the performing. And so I've played a lot of characters that have been kind of major key big kind of um, personalities, alpha males. And it's a real kind of relief to kind of be very internal and simple and truthful. And I think it's just the requirement of this script. It needed, it's, it's as you say, it's about the eternal, the internal landscape and, and kind of um, um, exploring that as opposed to what's the, the exterior. And because he's a man is so inward and is so, is so wanting to disappear into the into the walls and and be invisible it requires the actors the actor to be in a way inward looking and very very he's an introspective man so it's all about the kind of what's inside and and very little about what's outside so it required a kind of a a very very much a kind of a do less all the time And, and i think we had great great chats with Peter and, and, and he would let me try things and then he would say, okay, let's try this in the next take or let's try that in the next take. And what was great is that the way it was scheduled as well, we were, we were allowed the time. We didn't have to rush because it's delicate and needs space and time to explore it. And so we had that and, and that's not always the case on sets because there's a lot, there's time constraints, but it, it is, it it's a delicate piece required delicate handling so I was kind of supported all around me by Peter and Mark in the past and you know anything less than being truthful it just wouldn't work so you all the time trying to refine it and simplify it and 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 not kind of just not be be be, be simple and be truthful and, and that's fundamental film I think um, you probably talked as well, Tom, as well about the the intimate scenes between yourself and Tom Glencarney, and yeah. they are again wonderfully acted and beautifully shot by your yeah. director Peter. Yeah. Um, but it also must play in your mind when it comes to the call sheet and knowing in advance. Okay, oh, coming up now next week, we've got <laughs> we've got that sex scene. We've got to we've yes, got to yeah. we've got to do that. And uh, yeah. and and people probably forget as well just how technical things are because even 
there's a shot to be got. And, you know, you've got to make sure that you're in the lighting and everything is, exactly. is, is done correct. Can you talk to me about leading up to those scenes and, and actually what they are like to shoot? Um, well, it's, it's, it's like, in a way, a sex scene is like a fight scene. You would, it's, it, they're choreographed because, as you say, they have to be technically executed in terms of how the shot looks, what you see, what you don't see in terms of, you know, sensitivity towards actors' bodies and an audience and everything is, is, is technical in that respect. But what you're trying to do, I suppose, is within those technical requirements is be, again, truthful in terms of what the intimacy is and what the, and in this instance between Colm and, and Jay, it's like what the contract is, what, what Colm is paying for something and what is he getting and what, and it and it's about their their contract and 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 again about that contract going into something else in terms of intimacy and how Colm understands that relationship physically. But but the the technical side is funny because you know you kind of go okay as you say you need to be in this narrow light or it's lit this way or and you're being physical and you're being you know um, you're being passionate but within that passion like with a fight scene you have to be controlled and disciplined because you've got to be in a certain way and as I say at the old, same time we're trying to be truthful in terms of being intimate and being loving and tender so so there's a lot going on and then you're also like have no clothes on and there are people doing lighting around your arse and you're going oh okay <laughs> uh, this is you know what am I and so it's all the time a bit like but I think the older you get and the more experienced you get Maybe I find it the more relaxed I get around and I'm less kind of nervous about it. Mm -hmm. But I think what's great about intimacy coordinators, especially for women whereby sets are often male dominated, there's a lot of men in a crew. I can't imagine how tough in the past that has been for women actors who can feel very vulnerable around that because the crews are predominantly male and, and, and you have closed sets up to a point, but it's still... And so the intimacy coordinator movement and introduction, that's a really valuable... It's a really valuable um, contribution and part now of, of, the, of sets. So, so because they are vulnerable, you've got to take your clothes off and stand around naked and roll around on a bed and, and, and with a person you may not know very well. So they, they, are, they are... They can make you feel exposed on lots of levels. So... So the, the intimacy coordinator is a great introduction and, and, and it's a really welcome, a welcome thing. Correct me if I'm wrong, but was there a play that you went for in yeah. London and that you were devastated that you didn't get? But yeah. if you had gotten that play, you would not have played Nidge. Did I, am I get that correct? That's, yeah, that, yeah, that did happen. It was the summer of 2009. I was in some of the early 2009. I was auditioning for this play in London and I didn't, get it and I, I was I was pretty there are some jobs that come up and you you, you really want and, and sometimes they don't go your way for whatever reason and, and that can be pretty crushing but it is that thing one door closes and another door opens and and, and and you know I still think about those those moments of, of sliding doors where you go oh if that happened, happened this would have happened and so I didn't get the play and I realised you know when I was standing on the set of Love Hate, that if I, if I'd had gotten the play, I wouldn't be doing Love Hate, and you go, oh, it, it, it's you realise how life just, life shifts right, and life, mm. life, life interrupts you, 
you know, in all these different nuanced ways. But I, you can you can not you can you can trace that back to choices you make in your teenage years about what subjects you pick at school and and people you fall in love with and people you break up with and people you hang around with and choices you make in terms of the music you listen to or films you see. They're all the time these kind of life is all the time offering you different paths and different routes. But that was a very specific moment in my life. Um, absolutely. And that, 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 that was like an, an alternate universe that I'm in somewhere else. Mm. But my path is this when I was, I was just lucky. I was lucky not to get the play. You know? <laughs> I was lucky. That, it's amazing how things can work out. And I have to say as well, just to bring it on to all things Marvel, because yeah. there was a huge sense of pr- pride I felt watching you as Ebony Maw. Like there's one of our own up there in, yeah. in, in such a huge blockbuster cinematic universe. And yeah. how has that been for you now, being part of that? Because a lot of people, a lot of Marvel fans felt that Ebony Maw was such a good character that he could have had his own standalone film as a villain. Like he was that good. Yeah, I suppose, you know, it's like, in all honesty, I. I got the part and I went, I, I had no idea what the experience would be like. And I just felt like, I felt like I'm going to go and enjoy it. And I'm going to work as hard as I can. I'm going to just in, enjoy it. And, and, and my research was so much fun because it was like reading comics and watching all the Marvel films and, and reading about Stan Lee. And so all my research was this amazing kind of fun, kind of like being a kid again. And so you have projects like Rialto where, where the research is about addiction and about alcoholism and about whatever. But this was like this really enjoyable sitting down watching Marvel films and reading comics. And, and so I just went in and, 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 and said, I'm going to enjoy myself because you don't know how those things are going to turn out. And, and Ebony Maw as a character on the page, you could see, and in the comics, it's such a brilliant creation because he is kind of slightly weedy in physicality, but it's incredible intellect, incredible use of language and incredible. He's an arch manipulator and he can do all kinds of mental things. And, and so I knew it was a real actor's part as opposed to some of the other ones that are slightly more kind of like destroying and physical and killing people. It's, it's a much, it's a real, it was a real actor's part. So I knew I had that gift straight away. And so I, I, but you, again, you don't know how people are going to react. You go and you do your day and you're, you come home and then you go in the next day and you keep working. And, and so I had no idea how that, that character might land, but, but brilliantly it was a, it was a big uh, hit. And, and so but again, suddenly in the lap of the gods, how that's going to, you don't know how they're going to edit it and you don't know if yeah. they're going to change your voice and use someone else's voice or change the character's physicality that you worked on for so long. You kind of don't know until you're actually watching it yourself. So it's very frightening actually going to a premiere and going, am I even in this film? If I'm <laughs> in it, are they using my voice? So that, that can be quite nerve wracking. But it, I, can, I can only speak positively about that experience more than positively it was a real it was it was a real pinch me experience and and i'm so grateful for it and i i yeah it was a total blast tom we're we're in such different times now at the moment and even the mid-budget movie with rialto you know being reasonably you know low budget mid-budget like what again i'm trying to be hypothetical here like in in terms of uh, where you see films of this nature going in the future do you think we'll be 
again, we don't know, but it, it's very difficult now. People having confidence in cinema. Hopefully, you know, we'll get back on track. But one thing we've definitely seen is the demand for video on demand um, releases and stuff like that. Yeah. Be speculative at the moment. How do you think the low to mid budget movies are going to do going forward? Well, I think obviously when you've got like big studio movies that can invest hugely in COVID safety measures, that's like they 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 can they can factor that into their budget. And then you've you've smaller scale independent movies that don't have that same budget, obviously, and need to still be safe and have a workable um, environment. But I think. It's interesting. It's like fringe theatre, or fr- it's like you just make it work. It it can happen. It's amazing people's adaptability and ingenuity and passion for work and passion for storytelling, and 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 you just make it work. And also, you know, we have all where before hiring cameras or buying cameras so expensive. You know, people have iPhones. People have you can people shoot the most amazing stuff on their iPhones, short films, scenes. I, I just. I think Irish film is in an amazing place. Like you've got herself, Arakt, Broken Law, Vivarium, Rosie plays Judy, all these amazing, amazing films that are just like just this year. Like it's an astonishing year for Irish independent cinema. It's a properly astonishing uh, year. And I, I think we have the talent, we have the capability. And even with COVID, we'll make it work because people want to hear stories and people want to tell stories and people will just, will just make it happen. It takes a bit of jiggery pokery and a bit of, you know, a bit of fine tuning. And, but, but I, I'm totally confident that that will make it work because we need culture. We need stories. We need to understand the world through the arts and, and they will always be there and, and people will always find ways to tell stories and and it, and it will happen. I don't. I have no fear for the future for filmmaking at all. Well, I would urge people to seek out Rialto, Tom. I think it's up there as one of your best performances. It That's is very kind. just an absolute stunning piece of work. Um, not only from yourself but everyone involved. It's it, as I said to you earlier on. It has stayed with me for days. Um, it really oh, is such a great, 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 great film. Do check it out, Rialto. It's a real must-see. Tom Von Lawler, an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so Thank much you. for your time. Thank you. We love movies with Gordon Hayden. Spin. And that's it for part one of We Love Movies. But coming up after the break, we will be reviewing Tom Von Lawler's film, Rialto, and we'll be taking a look at Aaron Sorkin's latest directorial effort, The Trial of the Chicago 7. That's all to come very shortly on We Love Movies. We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden. Spin. You're very welcome back to part two of We Love Movies with me, Gordon Hayden. Now, before the break, we spoke to Tom Von Lawler all about his new film, Rialto. We'll be reviewing it very shortly with Chris Wasser. But first, Chris is going to take a look at Aaron Sorkin's latest directorial effort, The Trial of the Chicago 7. Hello, Chris. Good to speak to you as always. Uh, this film, we should say, it's coming to Netflix. And um, a lot of people would, you know, huge fans of Aaron Sorkin's work and would be intrigued to see how he's followed up Molly's Game as his next director project. But 
the interesting thing is, Chris, this film originally started out as a Steven Spielberg film. It, it did, Gordon, yes. Uh, so this is Aaron Sorkin's second time as a director, but of course he's, he's been around for, for decades and, and you know, won awards and acclaim and millions of fans as a screenwriter and playwright, the creator of The West Wing. Uh, he wrote the Social Network screenplay, Steve Jobs. But for this project, it's been actually floating around for maybe 15 years. Steven Spielberg was going to make it at one stage. Everything was in place. Uh, he had uh, cast members signed up. One of those cast members, Sasha Baron Cohen, actually made it through until you know the final project, uh, product, the, the film that we're actually seeing. Uh, he acquired funding. And he also talked to Aaron Sorkin about the screenplay. Now, we don't quite know if Aaron Sorkin had written anything at that stage, but everything was rolling. And it was actually the 2007 uh, uh, Writers Guild of America, the, the, the strike that happened, you'll remember. That just put an end to everything. And, uh, you know, there was also maybe a problem with funding. I mean, Spielberg apparently had some very big names lined up for this one, including Will Smith. And we all know that Will Smith does not come cheap. So everything just kind of fell apart. And it was a couple of years ago that it all just, you know, these things happen. Sometimes someone else picks it up. In this case, it was Aaron Sorkin, and they finally made it happen. So the story for anyone who uh, is not familiar with the, with the actual trial of the Chicago 7, because that title is more than just kind of, you know, uh, this is one of those films where everything you need to know is in the title, Gordon. Um, but it is about uh, the 1969 trial of seven anti-Vietnam War protesters. And these guys, they were all male. Um, they were charged by the federal government with conspiracy and with crossing state lines um, with the intention of in, in, inciting riots. And this all happened uh, through a series of countercultural protests at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago uh, the year before. So these seven men, they were sort of made an example of the federal, government, uh, the federal government being like, you know, look, we're not going to take uh, guys coming out here and essentially telling the truth about how Vietnam was a completely unnecessary war. And you, they made an example of, of, of seven very high profile figures, including Tom Hayden, uh, a, a political activist, and Black Panther co-founder Bobby Seale, who's actually also being charged uh, for, for a murder he didn't commit. Um, so there was an awful lot going on here and they were treated very badly by, by this incompetent judge who should never have been, you know, overseeing the trial in the first place. So essentially Aaron Sorkin has taken these events and has turned it into uh, this big sensational courtroom drama. We want to underscore again that we're coming to Chicago peacefully, but whether we're given permits or not, we're coming. We're going to Chicago to protest the Vietnam War. And there's no place to be right now but in it. We watched for a decade while these rebels without a job tell us how to prosecute a war. Well, they're going to spend their 30s in a federal facility, real time. People say, you know, Abby, are you concerned about an overreaction from the cops? Holy shit. You all right? It was until I saw that. Are the people ready to make opening arguments? Now, you've got an amazing cast in there, all in all, even though if we didn't get some of the heavy hitters like uh, Will Smith, but you've got one of Spielberg's now regulars, Mark Rylance, you've got Frank Langella, Eddie Redmayne, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, you mentioned Sasha Baron Cohen, and you've also got Michael Keaton in there too, just to name but a few. And we all know Aaron Sorkin, he's, he's, a, he's an incredible writer when it comes to dialogue, and he does love a good courtroom drama for anyone that has seen A, a Few Good Men, which is is based on his stage play as well. There is a worry though, Chris, with Aaron Sorkin, that you can hear the writer's voice in some of his characters. 
Is that the case here, though, with the trial of the Chicago 7? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, this is, look, look, this man, Aaron Sorkin, he is capable of greatness. Greatness being, you know, his Steve Jobs film, his The Social Network. He is capable of absolute bonkers melodrama, you know, the West Wing, the, 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 the newsroom, even a few good men is just, you know, it's not quite as great as we might remember it, but you can hear the writing all over this. Every character in this, though they're based on real people, they're walking, talking dictionaries, you know, they're coming, they're all, the dialogue is practically, you know, it's, it's trailer ready. What you're hearing is just statements that were made for advertising this film almost. And everyone is just full of dramatic non sequiturs and then, they all have their bags of one-liners. There's the usual problems that exist in Aaron Sorkin films as well, aside from the writing, which is that, you know, there are no real female characters of worth here. There are no real strong, uh, just the, the female characters are actually walking, talking cliches. And that's still disappointing to see. Um, and then also on the other side, you know, you've got Aaron Sorkin kind of, you know, rearranging the furniture in terms of historical facts to suit his narrative. And that, and that, now, now that said, he's still not a great director. He still only has two films under his belt. This film is quite entertaining, sometimes for all the wrong reasons, but sometimes for the right ones too. You know, it does have its moments. Okay. Uh, it helps that you've got an amazing cast and you know, it helps like Michael Keaton shows up near the end when you think everything is all almost over so there are things of worth here it's just sometimes very baggy very saggy uh you know usual Aaron Sorkin fare but I, I I did I did have some fun with it which is a strange thing to say about a film like this but but it, it, it did hold my attention out of 10 what are we giving it Chris the trial of the Chicago 7 I think 6 out of 10 is is, is probably fair great performance some dodgy moments but some great ones too and we should say it's getting a limited cinema run for two weeks and then it will be on Netflix. We are going to pivot now onto Rialto, which uh, we spoke to Tom Von Lord, the star of the film, a little earlier on. Um, this film is based on Marco Halloran. Marco Halloran, fantastic screenwriter. You'll also know him as an actor in films, of course, like um, Adam and Paul. But this uh, Rialto is based on his stage play, Trade. Chris, um, just for those unfamiliar with the story, what's happening here? Uh, what's happening here is that we have Tom Von Lawler playing a chap named Colm. He is 46. He lives in Dublin. Uh, he's married, two kids. The two kids are teenagers. And his dad has just died when we meet him. So he is he is struggling with his grief. Um, and there are also changes afoot in his work life. He holds a managerial position uh, down at the Docklands. And it's his relationship with his son, Shane, played by Scott Graham, which is a bit problematic. And also his marriage to Claire, played by Monica Dolan, seems to have hit a bit of a brick wall. The biggest problem is that he's drinking too much. And that might have something to do with the fact that he's keeping a secret from his family, which is that he's gay. And this seems to be uh, something he has never spoken about before. And he seems ashamed of it. And everything starts to unravel after he has a, a, an afternoon a public encounter with a, a 19-year-old uh, male sex worker named Jay, played by Tom, uh, um, uh, Tom Glen Carney, uh, who you might, have, you might know from, from, from Dunkirk. And Colm, you know, tries his best to say, you know, this is a one-off, but Jay arrives at his workplace, and without giving too much away, everything just kind of begins to spiral. They do begin to see one another a bit too much. Uh, you know, his drinking worsens, his relationship with his son worsens. This is, this is, it's hard stuff, Gordon. It's real life, and it's very hard to watch at times. Thing happened today. It was this uh, this lad. He hit me a few digs, took me wallet. Why didn't you say Eric? I didn't know how. How long have you been with us? A lifetime, you could say. Good. Your job is gone. Someone here to see you. Who? Somebody lad, I don't know. What do you want? Money. 
Riado, I have to say, Chris, this film, I think, worked more for me than it did for you. And just from my side of it, I love the performances in it. I just thought, Tom Von Lawler, that man is a chameleon. The way he can immerse himself in a role, especially when you see what he's done with Colm, the way he's put on the weight, the beard, he just, you don't see him. You just, that I think is testament to him as an actor. And Tom Glenn Carney, who people will know from Dunkirk, as you mentioned, he was more, uh, his character was alongside Mark Rylance on the boat in that particular side of the story. But he was fantastic as the sex worker, Jay, in this. And both men are incredibly damaged. Both are. And it's one of those films, again, you're kind of going, I don't know where this is going to go. I was, it really held my attention. I thought the writing was excellent. I just, all in all for me, it was a bleak. It was so depressing. It was sad. And, but at the same time, with the, I, I thought the direction and uh, by Peter and Mackie Burns, I thought really did this work justice and helped transform that stage play up onto the big screen for Marco Halloran. This worked for me, Chris, but for you, what were your issues? I had a few issues and I agree. Peter Mackie Burns, who you might've uh, uh, might watched Daphne, which Tom Van Lalla was also a part. Uh, the guy is a very strong director and he does, he gets the most out of Dublin in this. He, it's a beautiful looking film. And the performances are just remarkable. Um, it's a little bit like what we were talking about, The Trial of the Chicago 7. Very different film, which has its faults, but you can't put the, the performances in that film are very strong. It's the same here, different, you know, different uh, bag altogether. It's just, it's, it goes back to Marco Halloran, whose work I, I, I admire uh, uh, deeply. It's, it, it goes back to the fact that we are working with a, 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 what was essentially a play. Uh, an award-winning play called Trade, which was set in a B&B bedroom, um, and it was just a two-hander. We do get those scenes that were originally in the play, but everything else outside of that has been written specifically for the film, and it kind of seems as though every other supporting character and everything that happens inside of that room is, is, is a bit of an afterthought. And you know it's not, but it just comes down to the language. It comes down to, you know, visually, this is a beautiful film, but the language, I just thought it's that problem when films based on play are... You could, where you can still hear the theatre talk. You can mm. still hear the staginess. And so it's a bit creaky around the edges. And also, in terms of like, you know, the performances, they, as I say, they are great, but it all, it's all a bit one note. There's, there's no letting up. So it is relentlessly grim. It's just incredibly depressing at times. And the, probably the, the, the one more thing that I had a problem with, I didn't have lots of problems with this garden, but just the score. The score is lovely. It's very overbearing. It's so, the music is constantly there almost to tell you how you should be feeling. So this is, there is I, I, would, I would definitely recommend this film. I would probably put, you know, uh, uh, stick uh, the kettle on afterwards for a nice cup of tea and maybe a Disney film. Um, it, is, <laughs> it is very depressing, but yes. you are seeing some incredible performers at work here. And I think you're also seeing one of the greatest screen talents we have at the moment at work. So just approach with caution. And you know what I would say as well, Chris, Rialto for me just is another film which sums up how, like we, 2020 has been such a rotten year, but it has been a great year for Irish independent films, I feel. And this again shows the talent in front of and behind the camera as well. And I hope Rialto is the type of film that can travel for all involved in it. Chris, out of 10, what are you giving Rialto? 
again, I think I'll go with a, a solid 6 out of 10. So that is 6 out of 10 for Rialto. Chris Wasser, thank you so much for that. And Chris then reviewed, pr- prior to it, uh, The Trial of Chicago 7 from Aaron Sorkin. And as we mentioned, it's getting a limited cinema run for two weeks and then it'll be on Netflix. Chris Wasser, we'll talk to you again next week. We love movies with Gordon Hayden. Spin. Now we love movies. It is time to turn our attention to the big movie stories from the week. And joining me, as always, is Andy McCarroll. Andy, always good to speak to you, my friend. Um, Andy, this story we're going to kick off with, this I thought was absolutely bizarre. So Barry Jenkins, Oscar-winning director behind Moonlight, and then he followed that up with If Beale Street Could Talk. That got a lot of acclaim as well. Not as much now as Moonlight, but that film was a real passion project of his to make, and he got to make it. But this next film that is on his cards is a real bizarre one, bearing in mind he has just completed work with Amazon Studios on a new series called The Underground Railway, which is sort of an an alternate history about the Underground Railroad and the the routes and the safe houses slaves used to escape captivity in the 1800s. So, but Andy, reveal all, because he is signed up to a franchise of sorts. What is going on? Yeah, he will be directing the sequel to The Lion King, um, which won't be based on the already sequel, Simba's Pride. Yeah, like you said, I I saw the headlines, Barry Jenkins and Lion King 2, and just automatically assumed it was two different stories. It Based on what he's done before, I, I've no idea why he's doing this. The only thing I can think of is this is some way to, you know, kind of the one for me, one for you, and he wants to get in with Disney because obviously Disney being the, the biggest game in town but from what he's done to, to take this kind of left toward it's weird to call like you know a billion dollar franchise a step down but it just seems like something he is going to be so confined in he's not going to be able to make the film he wants to make Disney are notoriously hands-on as you can see the fact they fire like a, a Star Wars director at least once a film so for him to get on board with this it seems like a very odd mix of people to be honest i'm not a big fan of the disney live action and Mm. you'd be hard pressed i think to find anyone who said that the the live action lion king is their favorite version of the film and not only that you've got now you've uh, live action little mermaid coming up as well you've got cruella deville with emma stone and a live action peter pan as well i I wonder if this is you know i know the lion king made you know a billion dollars but i think coming out with those you know fatigue straight away from that we've had aladdin we've had this we've had jungle book I'd be curious to see if this does anywhere as well as the first time or has the novelty kind of worn off now. Yeah, I can't see this being an attractive proposition at all, but maybe the paycheck that's been, uh, you know, flickered under his nose is something that's drawn him in. And we're going to move on, Andy, to a story which I just can't wait for the, the, the cameras to get rolling on this. Barry Levinson, the director behind the likes of Wag the Dog and Rain Man, he's making a movie all about the making of The Godfather and production is pre-production is well underway Andy because they've now started casting because for anyone that uh, you know very cinephile that rightly knows Francis Ford Coppola the director amazing cast with The Godfather the likes of Marlon Brando who won an Oscar for playing Don Corleone so Andy give us an insight into who the the sort of the A-list actors um, that have been cast and who they're playing yeah like you said very excited about this. We've got Oscar Isaacs, who's going to be playing Francis Ford Coppola, who I only found out recently was 31 when he directed The Godfather. So wow. that's depressed the life and soul out of me. 
you've got Jake Gyllenhaal. He's going to be playing the the legendary producer Robert Evans. If if you don't know who Robert Evans, is a wonderful book about him called The Kids Days in the Picture. It's documentary is brilliant as well. And sorry to cut across you. If you get a chance to check out the documentary, The Kids Days in the Picture too is great. Yeah, documentary way easier to do than the book. Go with that. <laughs> <laughs> and like you said, director Barry Levinson, who's you know. Wag the Dog Sphere is a, a, a favourite of mine and Rain Man as well. Good Morning Vietnam. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola, who's kind of very picky about stuff that he done, he's 100% on board as well. He said that any movie that Barry Levinson make would be absolutely interesting and absolutely worthwhile. So it, it's good that you've got the, the collaboration with them. And of course, straight away then, you start your mind starts to wander. Uh, Gillian Temple from Warner Brothers actually put up a good thing about uh, kind of alternate casting of who you'd have for The Godfather. You know, Fassbender as Tom Hagen was the one that stood out for me. So I think this would be me and you, I think, especially we'll have great fun trying to pick out who should play, you know, the, the Al Pacinos or the, you know, the, the Robert Duvals in this film. Oh, I think so. Like, whoever's going to get cast as uh, Marlon Brando, what an interesting um, role that's going to be. And Jake Gyllenhaal as uh, Robert Evans. So far, it, it's looking really, really promising, Andy. Now, one of the big surprises has to be of late is that, We've got, we're going to get a new Borat movie because Sasha Baron Cohen had been seen doing some filming, but people were unsure, was this going to be part of his HBO series? But it turns out, no, we're getting a second Borat film and Amazon have snapped it up. Andy, what do we know about it? Uh, so far, we know the title, which is just fantastic. It's Borat, the gift of pornographic monkey to Vice Premier Michael Pence to make benefit recently diminished nation of Kazakhstan, Great. which I can see being abbreviated to Borat 2 pretty much everywhere. And we have the poster that came out today, which is you know, every bit as, as Sasha Baron Cohen, as you would think. It's him saying, wear a mask to save lives. And of course, he's wearing the mask somewhere where you probably shouldn't be wearing a mask. Um, <laughs> anyone who's seen the mankini will know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm very excited about this. I actually, I really liked his uh, This Is America uh, TV show. It, it didn't have the same kind of impact, I think, as the, the likes of Ali G. I think that's been kind of done to death on that. I'm curious to see what way he does this because it is kind of low-hanging fruit at the moment to, to make fun of all the, the MAGA and the Trump supporters. But he's a very, very bright guy and I think he will have a, a different take on this. And of course, you know, even just looking at that post, there's going to be those gross-out moments probably to, to rival that wrestling match that was in the first film. <laughs> Oh my God, that was just brilliant. I have to go back and rewatch Borat again. I think it's been well overdue. It's mad to think though, Andy, how long ago it's been. Uh, if memory serves me right, are we going back to 2006? Yeah, that's right. Also features probably Pamela Anderson's greatest ever performance. That's the true. fact that we still don't know why she's actually being kidnapped or she's just putting it on. If she was just putting it on, she's a far better actress than anyone ever gave her credit for. Uh, listen, I can't. The, the, the return of Borat is most welcome this year. And I think they've really tried to rush this into, uh, into post-production so that they'll get it out in time for uh, the, the presidential election stateside. So, Andy, sticking with the, the, the poster side of it, M. Night Shyamalan, he has released the poster for his new movie. And so tell us a little bit more about this, because i got to say, when I saw it, it did give me sort of shades of soil and green about it. Yeah, it's well. The design itself looks very, you know, appropriately grim for 2020. It's a, a monochrome hourglass which is filled with falling bodies instead of sand, and the tagline then is "It's only a matter of time." So, it's you know, looks to be Shyamalan going back to that kind of you know, dark. You know, the the weird thing I got the kind of the happening vibe off it, which isn't mm. you know, the, the best thing to associate it with. He never. He's one of those directors. He got stuck with the the new Spielberg tag after the Sixth Sense, 
and sign. Signs I absolutely love. I think it's very underrated, but just never seemed to pick up on that again. I thought the visit was really good. I thought um, Split was quite good, but then it seems to be anytime he's built up, he just absolutely shoots himself in the foot. And I think coming off the back of Glass, which was absolutely horrendous and was absolutely vilified by the critics as well. I think with his back against the wall, going back to what looks to be a sort of you know, horror, thrilly, thriller, mysterious, twisty-turdy film, maybe that would be the one to, to get him back on track and then he'll make it another big budget film that will completely undo all the good work he's done. Well, he does have another project lined up. He's got, he got himself now in with Universal Pictures and ever since he gained back that credibility through Jason Blum with The Visit, he now seems to go, okay, I know what works for me. I know you weren't mad about Glass. I do have a soft spot for Glass, believe it or not. I think I'm one of the few critics that came out of that screening and was like, I thought that was really good. And everyone looked at me as if I had about 10 heads. <laughs> I was like, going, did you all not like that? And everyone was like going, no, it was horrendous. I was going, really? I didn't think it was that bad. Mind you, Bruce Willis, I think that man should be put out to pasture. What he is doing still making films for a person who clearly doesn't want to be in anything. And he can't be spent, he can't have like that much uh, child support to be, sp- uh, to be paying Demi more. Like, what is he doing? The men's straight to video stuff that he's making, I'm going off on a tangent now, will put Steven Seagal to shame. It's just shocking the way his career's gone. Um, anyway, I want to get that off my chest. Andy, just tell me about James Cameron and Avatar because this is talk about um, the, the never-ending story here. We were supposed to have gotten Avatar 2 years ago and I don't know if there's still a love there for Avatar, but we're going to get it. But am I right in thinking, Andy, it's obviously not going to be until next year when we're going to see Avatar 2. So what's the state of play with that film and its other sequels? No, it's actually the year after next. It's December 2022. We'll be getting the first oh, one. The four, this was supposed to be, I think 2012 was the first one we were supposed to get Avatar 2. So it's been delayed 10 years already. He was speaking at Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, World uh, Austrian Conference, which is a thing apparently. And he told them that Avatar 2 was 100% complete. The film is locked. They were supposed to release it next year, but obviously with the, the virus, everything been pushed back 12 months. He said Avatar 3 is 95% complete. And once they're released, he'll be happy to start work then on four and five. I, I, I don't know about you, I have zero interest in this. If I look at through Cameron's kind of filmography, Avatar is the one film I'd say, I don't want to see a sequel to that. Like True Lies, Titanic, even him coming back to doing like a Terminator or an Aliens film. I'd enjoy that. I just have zero interest in that world. The characters, the act, it was just unbelievably bland. And this just seems to be, look at what I can do with all these fancy new cameras as opposed to any sort of coherent story. But isn't the interesting thing about Avatar, Andy, is that the story and the characters, everyone seems to have forgotten. But the only talking point about Avatar is that it was the most successful film ever made and that it, was, it made over two billion. That is the only real takeaway from that film, I feel. Yeah, and the reason it made as much as it did, it was one of the first... 3D films to be shot in 3D where it was promising this immersive experience and I think anyone would struggle now to say was it actually that good the fact that 3D is almost completely gone thanks be to God it kind of is a testament to that that they never this was a a once-off gimmick like anyone listening now name four characters in that film or tell me how the film ends or give me one memorable moment from it apart from the you know putting your hair into the tail of a dragon or whatever it was it, it just made no sense and I have no interest in going back. I think I watched it in the cinema and then just had no interest to ever going back to watching it again. So uh, is the appetite going to be there for two, three, four and five? But it's Cameron. You know, a couple of years ago, if you'd have told me would people be interested in the film about the Titanic, you probably would have said no as well. And, and look how that turned out. 
Very true. Andy McCarroll, thank you so much for your time. A pleasure as always. That is a wrap for this week on We Love Movies. Thank you so much for your company. We'll be back again next week from eight right here on Spin. For me, Gordon Hayden, and the rest of the team, enjoy your Sunday. <laughs>